Hi, Pastor John here. You know, last week when we got together, we were looking at the crucifixion, and we asked the question, are you crucified with Christ? We took a close look at what that should mean to the Christian's daily walk. Well, this week, we're going to be in Luke chapter 23, verse 50, through chapter 24, verse 12, and we're going to look at the resurrection, and we're going to ask the same type of question, are you resurrected with Christ? And if so, what does that resurrection mean to our daily walk? So let's join the service. I'll have some comments for you afterwards. I hope you'll stay around and listen to them. But thank you for tuning in and let's join the service now. I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 23. We're going to be in, um, starting in verse 50. We're going to go all the way to 24, 12. Um, and while you're turning, let me tell you about a, a friend that I have from uh, quite some time ago. He came to me, he was really excited. He said, John, I've got a new life. I'm a new creature. I've got a new heart. I said, that's fantastic. You've been saved. And I said, well, what, what, is, what does that mean to you? What does it mean? And he says, it means that I don't have to do anything. It means that I'm free. And that, that I can just be who I am. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, and so I, I said, are you sure you don't have to do anything? And he said, yes, I've been resurrected with Christ. That's my question to you today. Are you resurrected with Christ? Have you risen again with Christ? Now, last time we got together, uh, we talked about, are you crucified with Christ? And what, what does that mean? What does it mean to be crucified? Uh, do you understand what he went through so that we could have this moment? And if you understand everything that he went through, how does that affect your daily living? How does a crucifixion affect the way that you relate to the people around you on a daily basis? Today we're going to look at his resurrection, and, and, and we're going to find out how that should affect our daily living, because you can't have the crucifixion without the resurrection and an ongoing life. So our sermon today is called Resurrection. We're going to see this resurrection in two profiles. We're going to see the tomb occupant, the occupant of the tomb in uh, chapter 23, verses 50 through 56. And we're going to look at the tomb raider in 24, 1 through 12. I did that on purpose. So it, this, is not, this is not a sermon about Indiana Jones. So let's take a look at the tomb occupant, starting with verse 50. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. Now, here what we find out right away is there's somebody on the council that is good and righteous. And he's from a small town about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Here's Jerusalem on the map. You can see the red dot. And here's Arimathea. It's about a day's walk away from Jerusalem. And it says in verse 51 that this man who had not consented to their decision and action. Now, here's the primary evidence that the trial that they put Jesus through was a sham. It was contrived. So, it, it, Mark 14.64 says that they all condemned him as deserving death. Now, watch this, because I've told you before, uh, I've, I've run into problems when I tell people that all doesn't always mean all. People look at me funny, okay? But it, it doesn't. It doesn't always mean all. When we find out that they all condemned him to death, what they're talking about is all the people that were there for whatever type of meeting they had in the middle of the night. So Joseph of Arimathea wasn't there. If he was there, he didn't agree 
Sometimes all doesn't mean all. We've got to look at, at words like this in their context. Now, not just in their immediate context, but in the overall context of the Bible. Sounds simple, but it requires some knowledge of what your scriptures are. Joseph didn't agree with the council. Furthermore, he was looking for the kingdom of God, verse 51 says. Now, Luke identifies Joseph of Arimathea with several other key figures in Jesus' story here. People like Zechariah, Elizabeth, Simeon, and the prophetess Anna, all of whom are called righteous. Now, we've got to be careful with this word as well. Because when we see that somebody is righteous, you know, we find out Noah is righteous. We find out that Job is righteous. But what they're talking about here is righteous in a very human sense. They're not perfect. They don't have the perfect righteousness of Christ. Uh, they are righteous as far as a man can be. And what it really means is they have a tendency to trust God and to strive for holiness. We'll talk about that word in a little bit, strive. And they do this in the imperfect, but in a manner that brings honor to God and, and glorifies Him. In verse 52, it says, This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, this is, the reason he did this is there's a, the law quoted in Deuteronomy 21 says that a man who's executed has to be buried before nightfall. So somebody's got to observe that, that uh, the law has to be kept here. Except not many people are stepping forward. And the reason not many people are stepping forward is because this is bad news. Jesus Christ has just been executed. The council has more or less turned against him. And if you identify with him uh, after he's been killed, you could get in trouble yourself. This is very risky. So Joseph is, is risking everything here. To be identified with a, a, a convicted and executed criminal was dangerous, and particularly in, in the fact that, that Jesus is dead here. Why do this after he dies? I mean, he's gone. Why would I hitch my caboose to him after he's been treated so badly? But Joseph does it. And in verse 53 it says, Then he took it, the body down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. Now I want you to watch what's happening in the narrative here. Because every step we take seems to affirm the fact that Jesus is dead. There have been all these, these theories about what happened. Oh, he swooned, he was in a coma, this sort of thing was happening. But here's somebody that's got direct contact with the body, and they're, they're preparing him for burial. It's a very complicated procedure. Uh, and so we have this witness that Jesus is actually dead, and we have this man who not only identifies with Jesus Christ, not only identifies with those people that trust him, but he honors him. He honors him by giving a proper burial. Chapter 19 of his gospel, John says this, that Joseph and Nicodemus anointed Jesus with over 100 pounds of spices. Now that's a significant figure because that was the measure of spices it took to bury a king. Joseph's not just saying we're going to give him a proper burial. Joseph is saying we're going to give our king a proper burial. So, and the reason he did that, because 
that who was going to occupy, that is who was going to occupy the tomb. A brand new, unused tomb was going to be occupied by the king. His body would not be spoiled by the bones of another. There's a fresh tomb here. And just like the donkey that Jesus rode into town on at the beginning of the week, here at the end of the week, he's the first. He's the first to ride that donkey. He's the first one to be in this tomb. He's the first one of many things. John calls him the firstborn among the dead in Revelation chapter 1. And what that means is he's the first to be risen from the dead. The first one to be exalted. And, and the good news is that all those who are in him are raised from the dead as well. Now I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here, but we'll, we'll go back to our scripture, verse 54. It was a day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. So this would be Friday, late afternoon, before the sun would set. Uh, and and the, the preparation is to prepare uh, for the Sabbath because no work is supposed to be done on the Sabbath. Um, for those who have been here for a while, you've probably heard me talk about being in Jerusalem on Shabbat, on Sabbath. Uh, the first time we were there, Kelly and I uh, got on a tour bus and we went out to uh, the edges of Jerusalem on Friday. And as we came back into Jerusalem at about 4, 4.30 on Friday afternoon, there, there, I mean, it's a crowded city. There was nobody on the streets. And, and the, the bus is kind of driving through the, the community, and our, our guides are looking at us and got this little smirk on their face, and we're like, where is everybody? Well, it's Shabbat. It's Sabbath. People are preparing for the Sabbath. We got to our hotel, and the hotel's got people all over trying to check in. And, and so there are people at the counters and there, there are guys kind of walking around with their luggage and carrying them for them and there, there are guys getting on the elevators with them and taking the elevators up and the elevators don't have, they stop at every floor on Friday afternoon so that you don't have to press the button to tell them what floor you're on. So this is how seriously they take it. And the guys that are carrying the luggage and everything are uh, when I said, well, who, who does the luggage? Who, who does the unpacking? And the guy at the counter said, heathens, not the Jews. And their job was to take the luggage up to the room and unpack it and hang the things up and turn the lights on and, and all those things because you don't do any work on the Sabbath. Our bus guide, Kelly, was asking, I said, well, you know, do, what, do you have dinner? Yeah, but we cook it ahead of time. What do you do with the dishes? Well, we, we either leave them there or we stack them in the dishwasher. And the guy said, we think God does not see little fingers when you press the button to start the dishwasher. <laughs> so they take this seriously. And that's what we see happening here, the day of preparation. And in verse 55, it says, The woman who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Now, why would they do that? Why would they go and follow? Well, you know, it's Jesus Christ. But then it says in verse 56, Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments on the Sabbath. They rested according to the commandment. What was that about? I mean, if they followed Joseph and Nicodemus to the tomb and saw all these spices and everything, why would they do this again? Well, there's some conjecture here. We don't really know. But everybody involved in this little vignette here wants to be identified with their Lord and Savior. They, 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 want, they, they want to be identified with the occupant of the tomb. Everybody involved here is risking everything 
by showing that they have a relationship with him. Everyone is acting as righteously as they can. And these women, either they didn't see what was going on with Joseph and Nicodemus, or they wanted to to honor Jesus even more by being involved in the preparation. So what we see is all of these people trying as hard as they can, risking as much as they can to show that they know who Jesus Christ is. And we're sitting here reading about them. We're sitting here reading about people who are eager to identify themselves with Jesus Christ. I've got to ask you, if somebody writes about you or me in 2,000 years, who are we going to be identified with? What will be the, the primary characteristics of who we are? Would it be a hometown? Well, I'm from Chicago. I'm, I'm a Pennsylvanian. Would it be the job? I was a surveyor. Would it be our gender? Those are all important things, but it, oh, those are main identifiers. Would it be a sports team? Kelly and I were in France a couple years ago, and we walked through this very large cemetery in the middle of Paris. And there was one, there was one tombstone there that had the guy's name on it and the name of a soccer team. I thought, well, that's interesting. Is that what I would want on my tombstone? He was a Redskins fan? <laughs> Some people would say, no, I don't want that at all. The funny thing about it was we got back to our room and I googled the name of the soccer team. They were no longer in existence. So I, I didn't catch the dates on when this person died, but whatever he wanted to be identified with didn't even exist anymore. Would it be a hobby? This man was the greatest golfer ever. 2,000 years, people are like, what's golf? Would it be a political party? I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Libertarian, I'm this, I'm that. Is that what we want to be noted for? Here's what I hope they put on my tombstone. Keep this in mind, because the way I'm feeling today, that might be sometime soon. <laughs> I had a little cold this weekend. Follower of Jesus Christ. Fan of Jesus Christ. Identified with Jesus Christ. I hope I can live up to that. Will you be identified as righteous, as one who stood up and was counted as a follower, as a friend, as the, of the occupant of the tomb? And the occupant of the tomb, brothers and sisters, is the king of all kings. I, you know, that, that phrase kind of flows off of us, but we need to think about it. The king of every leader that ever existed in all of history. The Lord of lords. The, the Lord over all other lords. One who proved he was who he claimed to be by what happens next. And that's our second profile, the Tomb Raider. Watch this, in verse 24, chapter 1. Uh, chapter 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. So a new week begins Sunday morning. Different week for, for them than us. And it's routine enough, but it's characterized by, by mourning, by grief, by sadness, by a heaviness for the loss of a loved one. 
And Luke wants us to see here that the full expectation of the people that are going to the tomb is to do what is necessary to honor a body, to honor a corpse. Corpse of Jesus, who has been verified by several around him to be dead. Not just by the witnesses at the cross, but by these two respected men in the community, part of the council, who have tended to his remains. Verse 2, And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Now, you've got you to gotta put in your mind what this looked like. You know, there, there's two places where the tomb might have been. Some people think it's inside the church of the Holy Sepulchre. Some people think it's just out on the edge of town. It, it's fun to talk about, but it doesn't really matter where the tomb was. What matters is what's happening right here. Because these women are headed for the tomb and maybe they come around a corner or come on a rise or something and they see the tomb and there's no stone. So this is totally unexpected. The stones rolled away. You know, when Lazarus had been dead for four days and Jesus said, roll the stone back, they said, be careful, he stinketh. I love the King James in that one. What happened to this stone? They're there to complete the funeral. And what, what they're going to do is would be like us going to put flowers on the grave of somebody that was very close to us sometime after the funeral. Heavy hearts, wanting to remember, wanting to honor. And look what happens. Verse 3, But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. The body's gone. In order to understand the full implications of this particular moment, we should also understand the mindset of the people involved in it. They're approaching a grave, a dead man in a grave, and they find the tomb empty. There's only one possibility as far as their thinking is concerned. Somebody must have taken the body because bodies don't get up and walk away. They've done something with the body. Tomb raiders have shown up. And their eyes and their minds can't make any rational sense out of what they're seeing. And we see that in verse 4. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Now the word for dazzling here means bright, white, flashing like lightning. And if we take a look in the Old Testament, we find out that angels not only look like men or women, they look like people and often show up in shining and dazzling white clothing. They're signs of purity. They are signs of holiness. And that's what's happening at the tomb. So the women would have understood these are heavenly beings. These are the ones we've been reading about ever since we were small. What is going on? And they react to these heavenly beings in a scriptural, typical manner. They're frightened. I, I can't tell you how many people tell me, oh, I can hardly wait until I get to heaven. I'm going to go jump in the arms of Jesus Christ and he's going to hold on me. And there's a picture of him holding on to this woman and she's got her arms wrapped around him and she's crying and all this stuff. That, that's a wonderful picture. But we don't see that anywhere in Scripture. Confronted by a heavenly being, we, we find that we, we look at them and understand how imperfect we are. How human we are. And everybody in Scripture that accounts these people goes down on their face and says something like, what a wretched man I am. 
They're frightened. Verse 5. Bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, listen to this. Why do you seek the living among the dead? What? Did he say living? I mean, who are they coming for? They're coming for Jesus. And Jesus is dead. And the angel says, well, no, that's not true. But there are a lot of people who know that he's dead. And the angel says, he's alive. It's a sign of all signs. It's the miracle of all miracles. Now, they've seen people raised up by Jesus Christ. This is a little bit different. Jesus has been raised from the dead, not by God, but because he is God. Wow. Nobody killed God. Verse 6, he's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Now, here's the news that changes the world. Here's the news that the entire history of mankind pivots around. The news that are going to turn this small group of women away from their grief and towards their joy. The news is going to transform their lives forever. So much so that we're standing here reading about them today. And what the angels say is, he told you this is going to happen. He told you this is going to happen. Yet, they're having a hard time absorbing it. I mean, how many times have we read Scripture where they say, well, you ought to do this, and you should do this, and this is what's going to happen, this is going to happen. And we go, oh, I don't know if I can handle that. They're living out the greatest prophecy in Scripture right there at that empty tomb. And in verse 8, and they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, watch this. The very first proclamation of the gospel comes from a woman. All women can't preach. What do we do with this? What do we do with this? And look what happens. Look what happens. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. <laughs> Verse 11, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Nothing's changed in 2,000 years, folks. You know, there are women. That sounds like an idle tale. Can we believe them? I mean, the apostles are just typical. So it's not just the attitude about women. It's the magnitude of the message that they have. They all know that Jesus is dead. They've seen it. Peter followed him. And look what Peter does. Verse 12. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Now, this is, there's a lot of energy in this phrase here. Peter is excited. His heart is beating. Can it be true? I've got to go see this for myself. And it says, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what happened. Peter is so overwhelmed with what he's seen and what he knows to be true that he goes home to just absorb it. 
Wait a moment. Peter marvels because he knows that something earth-shattering has just occurred. And, and he's probably reasoning through it. Because he knows that if anyone's going to move the body and concoct some story about him coming back to life, it would have been one of them. And it's none of them. They haven't done anything. And by this time, we've had the story verified by several people. Jesus is alive. And the implications are absolutely enormous. He is. He is who he said he was. He did what he said he would do. He has the power to redeem. He has the power to forgive. Well, what does that mean? What does redeem mean? Well, redeem means that he's paid the price. He's paid the price and he's forgiven the sins. Of who? Of all those who believe in him. He's redeemed those who follow him, those who identify with him. He's paid the price for their sins. He's so powerful that death couldn't hold him. He's so perfect that sin couldn't stain him. He is powerful and perfect. And here's the really good news. He's eternal. He's eternal. He has no beginning and he has no end. And aside from all that, what has happened is exactly what he told them would happen. And an angel, two angels, hung around the tomb to give these people a heavenly message. And the message is the tomb is empty. It has been raided by the power and the presence of God. Two profiles. Occupant of the tomb. Well, the occupant of the tomb is the Lord of the universe, brothers and sisters. And he's taken the very worst that mankind can give him. Not only that, but in his purity, in his perfection, he's taken on the sins of mankind. His body has been tortured. And his spirit has been tried heavily. And the good people who placed him in the tomb thought it was the end. And what they didn't know was it was just the beginning. It was just the beginning. The beginning of a new life for all those who believe in him. And an eternal life for those who confess their sins and receive him as Savior. And it's all true because there was a raider of the tomb. God emptied the tomb out. An incredible demonstration of his power and his glory. Showing us that he has victory over sin and death. And he has got victory over so much more. I mean, we know. brother. Raise your hand if you know he has victory over sin and death. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, but there's more to it than that. He has victory over your situations. He has victory over your dilemmas, over your failings, over your weaknesses, over your sickness. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to make you strong today or he's going to make you well today. But ultimately, all of your sickness, if you believe in Jesus Christ, is going to be healed as you go into his presence. He's got victory over COVID. He's got victory over your pain. He's got victory over your grief. And he has victory. Listen to me carefully. He has victory over that one thing that you think you can hide from him. He has victory over that deep, dark secret that you think you keep to yourself. He knows 
all about it. There's nothing that is beyond his purview. There's nothing that escapes his knowledge. I've told you before, he told us he would never leave us and forsake us. That's a blessing. Sometimes we wish it wasn't such a great blessing. Jesus knows all that. He has victory over it, and he still loves you. He still loves you so much that he gave up his life so that you could be with him. And all this is proven by that empty tomb, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And scripture tells us that those who believe in him are given new hearts, new lives. And it's true. It's true. They are. We need to understand this. Paul writes in Romans in chapter 6, starting with verse 5, For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So the question comes, are you leading a resurrected life? Let me ask you this. If you are, has anything changed? Has anything changed? Do we live differently because of Christ? Are we becoming more like Him or more like the world? See, we talk about crucifixion and resurrection. Now we're talking about what it looks like in our daily lives. None of this, none of this comes easy to us. I mean, it, it's hard. Becoming like Jesus is a process, brothers and sisters. It's not an event. It's a process that we need to be diligent to pursue. Yes, we're free. Yes, we have new lives, new hearts. We are new creatures. Scripture is very clear about that. But Paul describes this as a battle within us in Romans chapter 7. A war between our spirits and our flesh. Our spirits desire holiness. Our flesh desires worldliness. And we have to consciously pursue holiness. Let me tell you something. The word strive, or the equivalent in Hebrew or Greek, appears in the Bible 21 times. 21 times. And so people say, oh, no, 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 that's in the Old Testament. No, no, no. It, it appears six times in the New Testament. Once in Luke, five times in the epistles, and the epistles are there to tell us how to walk out our faith. We're never told to strive to get saved. But we're constantly encouraged to strive to make the very best of our salvation, to walk in the fullness of our relationship with God while we wait to step into glory with Him. So my friend... My friend claimed he had a new life. Claimed he had a new heart. They're all true. And I knew him well enough to be able to ask if he still struggled with several issues. And his response was, yes, I do. But now I'm forgiven and I don't have to worry about those things anymore. They no longer get in the way of me being happy. Is that why God went through all this so we could be happy? 
Oh, I want you to be happy so bad. I'm willing to be tortured and give up my life. Let me add, if you have a new heart, you have a new life, what's changed? What evidence of transformation has risen up inside you? Are you living the new life? Are you pursuing it? Are you just doing everything you did before and not feeling bad about it? We need to ask ourselves these questions. Are you pursuing the new life? Are you pursuing the new heart? Are you striving for holiness, for righteousness? Because the raider of that empty tomb went in there not so you could be happy and carefree, brothers and sisters, but so that you could become holy. So that you could become righteous and be able to be in the presence of God forever. And if you pursue holiness, if you pursue righteousness, the happiness and joy will come after it. But you can't put one before the other. Then go in there so that we could be happy. You went in there so we could be holy. See, it's not just the resurrection that we experience. But it's the crucifixion as well. And we, brothers and sisters, we have to walk in both of them if we're going to experience the fullness of the Christian life, if we're going to dissolve ourselves of the frustration and the anger and the division and everything we see floating around us out there. We don't have to engage in that because we, we have been crucified and are being crucified and we have been resurrected and we are resurrected with Christ. Are you... Are you resurrected with Christ today? I'll leave that between you and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these beautiful words. And Lord, we confess that there are times when they just roll off our tongues without seriously considering what they mean, without seriously considering how we pursue them. And Lord, there are so many people that tell us we don't have to pursue them, that we don't need this stuff that we're forgiven, we're free. Do whatever you want to do, Father. Change our hearts. Help us to walk in those new hearts and let those hearts desire to be with you, Father. Desire to do the things that you've called us to do. That we might walk in the fullness of your blessing, Father. The fullness of a relationship with you. So that all these worldly issues could fall away. So that you could be the center of our focus. The center of our life. Because, Lord, we know We know that you will be the center of our eternity. We pray these in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be back again next week. Pastor John here again. I want to thank you for spending some time with us. If you're interested in supporting our ministry financially, you can give online at wbfva.org, clicking on the giving section. Or you can send us a check to Warrington Bible Fellowship, 46 Winchester Street, Warrington, Virginia, 20186. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear your prayer requests. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back again next week.